but you can put on this Bitcoin miner attached to your nuclear facility. And so since your, your, your Bitcoin mining site can be dialed up and dialed down, for kind of how it's dispatched, you've just kind of put like a supercharger on your nuclear plant. You can now actually provide flexibility to the grid because you have the ability to ramp your nuke through the Bitcoin mine. Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. 
Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, Peter? I'm good. Uh, when Nick Carter says to me, I need to talk to somebody, it's an instant invite on the show. Instant. Um, uh, Nick said, he reached out and said, you've got to talk to this guy. You've really got to get him on. And uh, we had a great dinner the other night. And it was great yep. to talk to you. Um, we're going to talk a lot about energy today. It's highly relevant to Bitcoin and mining. Um, but I think it'll be really useful to dig into a bit of your background first. Uh, you were an energy trader. Yep. So the insights you get into the market from that, I think is going to be super useful for anyone listening. Yep. So do you want to dig into the background? Sure. Uh, so first, thanks for having me here. And a lot of gratitude for Nick as well. He's made some great interest for me. So I'm very appreciative and, uh, and I've enjoyed uh, getting to know him. Um, so my background is that I think I'm one of the, the few people that's in kind of the Bitcoin space that was kind of like energy first. Uh, my experience so far has been that there's a lot of folks in, in, in Bitcoin that uh, are hardcore into Bitcoin and they're kind of forced into learning the energy side because it's such a big part. Um, so for me is that I s started in the energy industry in 2002 and it was just when the energy markets were being deregulated, right? So it was essentially going from, you know, vertically integrated utilities to open competitive markets, right? And so it's really unknown kind of how these markets would develop. And so it kind of feels like, um, kind of similar to like how Bitcoin is now, right? Which is essentially, um, how are these markets gonna develop? Are they gonna be hash rate markets? Are there gonna be some futures? Who knows, but how is this industry gonna uh, evolve? Um, so for me, as I started in 2002, and over the next uh, like 15 to 20 years, uh, essentially um, helped build and eventually led a trade desk that was responsible for uh, optimizing a portfolio of generation assets, uh, as well as proprietary trading in power markets. So, um, so my real strength and experience is kind of understanding the fundamentals of power markets so that you say, you know, what happens when you put in, um, you know, 2000 megawatts of wind in a certain area? You know, what is that gonna do to price? What is that gonna do to behaviors of people and kind of what are they gonna do after that wind's kind of put into the market? So what are the kind of like, uh, you know, these price signals drive behaviors? Um, <clears throat> and for me, it's like, Back in, uh, I think it was 2017 when I first heard about uh, heard about Bitcoin. Um, you know, it really came down to you know a friend called me up and said, "Hey, this is Bitcoin." I said, "This is amazing." You know, tell me about it, and he gave me the the digital gold uh, narrative, and I, I really gripped onto it. And then I said to him, "I said, well, how do you buy Bitcoin?" And he says, "Well, you can, or how do you get Bitcoin?" And he says, "Well, you can buy it, and it's cost ten thousand, or you can you can mine it." And I was like, "Okay, well, how much does it cost to mine?" Um, and he said it was at the time, maybe $200, right? And so it's like, crap, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect there, right? Which is like, because in commodities markets, you know, over time as prices always converge. So the cost to, cost to buy versus just kind of going and buying yourself versus make, make or buy was so big. There's like, I really need to understand the mining part of this because if I'm gonna be, you know, getting interest in Bitcoin, I really have to understand those pieces. So um, that was kind of my intro to, to Bitcoin was through the energy side. And then really need to dial into kind of like how does mining work so that you know, you know, um, if prices are going to uh, shoot to two hundred thousand dollars, like what does that mean for, you know, what are people getting paid and is it sustainable and whatnot? Because um, Bitcoin mining is producing hashes, which is just a commodity, right? It's the same thing as power generation. There's say gas plant is natural gas in, power out. Is that Bitcoin mining is power in, hashing out, right? So it's just another one of those things. So 
that's kind of my intro to Bitcoin and my background. Okay, can we dig into the trading desk side of things? I don't understand any of this. Like, just mm. explain to me what the desk does, the people on the desk do, what their goals are, or the objectives. Sure, yeah. So think about it as like um, before deregulation ended, is that you're a power generation company and you have these generation assets and you are a guaranteed rate of return on those assets. All you gotta do is produce the power and you're gonna get a guaranteed, call it eight or 10%, right? And so you have, um, you know, who you're selling to is, a, is pretty much like the um, utility commissions to say, we need to add more generation. You build the assets, you get paid. With deregulation, what happened was is that model went away and they said, we need to have competitive markets where it's not just one supplier supplying the energy to everybody. We want to have uh, competitiveness to happen that generation has to compete with other generation. So now again, you're this power company that used to have, uh, you know, air quotes, rate payers, right? They didn't have really any choice. And now you're going into this uh, uh, deregulated market, which means that you now have essentially length. You own this power generation and you need to sell it, right? And so with uh, this deregulation, what happens is that they came up with these new uh, kind of like power pool structures. So like ERCOT is one of those, PGM, New York ISO. And essentially there are auctions for, for the power and there's a settlement price. And so if you did nothing uh, for any type of hedging or kind of forward selling of this generation, you're gonna take whatever the spot price is, the auction clear for your power. So the reason why you wanna have a trade desk is that you can essentially do the kind of eyes closed and say, I'm gonna run my power generator and I'm just gonna take whatever uh, the price is, the spot price. Or you can find ways to do hedging that says I'm going to do long-term power sales. You're going to try and find ways either through uh, financial markets that you can kind of sell that power. You're going to try and find industrial customers such as uh, Bitcoin miners that'll take long-term offtakes. And so you think about it, it's just like if you are running a business um, and you are, say, a public company and you want to have very low kind of volatility, you want to kind of replicate that utility model is that you want to like, know what your costs are and you want to forward sell your power generation, right? So you don't want to have any kind of exposure to like, did the spot price come low? Was it high? They're like, we'd rather just kind of lock this off. So as a trade desk, uh, the responsibility is on one side is saying, you know, how do we now, you know, essentially monetize these generation assets that used to be just a, a rate of return, right? So how are we going to do that? And it was kind of unknown and, you know, what would the markets look like? Um, and then it's also about, um, that's kind of your existing generation, right? And so next you need to say, okay, where is there opportunity now for us to create new generation assets? And so think about this like in kind of Bitcoin mining, but inverse, right? This is where they're saying, where can we add power and mining is kind of where can we subtract it? And so they say, okay, well, we need to find out um, which markets have favorable, mar favorable market design that's gonna allow us to put in a new power generation asset into an area that we have uh, high degree of certainty that we're going to be able to recover our investment and then make a certain return. So by having trade desks that are actively in those markets and really understanding those, you can make better decisions on saying, where is the market that is going to give us the, uh, the best upside return on, on this new generation asset? Um, and you, know, you want to have uh, not kind of rely on a, a consultant to say, hey, you should put it here. You, you need to know yourself. So that's kind of a, an overview. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get you to walk through the absolute basics of this, just so I understand. So a power generation asset, give me an example of what one might be. Sure. Um, you can use a coal plant. Okay, so a coal plant, so yeah. you, you burn the coal, you create power, and you sell that to what the local grid, but maybe local companies. Right. Uh, so you can, you can sell it to both. Sure. So think about it as like, um, 
there's always two transactions that happen. Yeah. Right. Is that you are going to produce the power and you're going to inject that power into the grid. And you've got something that's called your point of interconnect. And it's a, it's a meter that's going to measure how much did you inject into the grid there. And then if you're in a market such as ERCOT, you're going to receive the auction, the, the real time or the, the settlement price for that, for that location. That's your payment. So I was kind of, I did nothing and there's this, you know, this meter, all I got to do is inject into that meter and then somebody's going to give me a paycheck for what was produced. And is that a daily price? There's a day ahead market where you can sell into the next day, which is like a financial market. Uh-huh. And then there's a real time market that can be broken out into five minute increments. So there's a price of power for every five minutes of the day. Wow. Mm-hmm. We'll, just, we'll just grab the coffee. Yep. Um, that was patiently done, Jeremy. Your timing was impeccable. Oh, if I was Ben, I would leave this <laughs> in and allow you to be wandering in. Uh, uh, that's, that's, yep. Sean's. Thank you. Cappuccino. <clears throat> okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, so you can either be day ahead or five-minute increments, but you've kind of got an idea of the price you're going to be getting. There's kind of a, I'm guessing, standard-ish standard price that mildly fluctuates, and you kind of know your cost, so you kind of know your daily-ish profit on spot. Kind of, and the okay. closer you are to that day, the better you know. Okay. Because you don't know, for example, a year out, what is that price going to be on the day a year from now? Yeah. But for today, you know, I've got some certainty around what is the demand in Texas and what is the generation that's available to meet that demand? So I've got some good indication for what today will look like because of that mix. But, but how many potential customers can you have? Because, for example, if you're producing all this power today and the grid's buying it from you, mm-hmm. and maybe there's another local business who wants to buy direct and you mm-hmm. can... Do you, have, do you transmit it direct to them or do you have to do it via the grid to them? Yeah. Um, I love these questions. Yeah, it's <laughs> good. Um, so I kind of said there's, there's two types of transactions, right? Yeah. And so like every power generator at least has one. And that one, gener- that one transaction is that they're generating power and it's injecting the grid at their point. They're just essentially, you know, like, think of the grid as just a bunch of like, you know, call it like pipelines. And they're dumping something into the pipeline and they're getting paid at that exact point, right? Um, the second transaction that happens is some type of uh, financial transaction or a sale to somebody else. But the electrons, as soon as you inject those electrons into the grid, right, you can't transport them, those exact electrons to anybody. Yeah. Right? It's essentially kind of getting mixed in with everything else. So even if though you could, for example, like um, you could be located right beside a hydro facility and be you know, within you know, a mile of that facility, and you would think that you're pulling the hydro generation because you could have... Uh, I've got a, a transaction with you. You're the hydro generator, and you want to de-risk. You don't want to just have that spot price of energy. You want to say, do you know what? I want to sell a fixed price because I don't want to be exposed to that, right? And so you'll make a transaction and say, hey, I'm going to sell you my power for $40, right? And I say, okay, I'm going to buy it. You're the hydro facility. I'm a mile down the road. Um, you're going to inject your power into the grid, right? And you would get paid for the power that you're injecting, but our transaction is going to cancel out your payment there and you're going to receive the one I'm getting that's going to be given to you. Okay. Right. So like, it's, so I don't actually ever send the power direct. No, you can't. Yeah. You're not allowed to. It's just impossible. It's impossible yeah. to build the infrastructure to do that. Um, it's well, the way you could do it is if you're co-located, right. Meaning that 
you never injected it into the gravy. It's kind of like this. It's like you have a hot dog, right? And it's like loaded up with ketchup, right? And then you put on like a, a little bit of mustard on that. Yeah, sounds right? good. <laughs> and then you're a mile down the road and you're like, do you know what? I'm just going to take the ketchup from the hot dog. I don't want the mustard. It's like it's impossible to, to take it off once it's in. Right. Right. And so you can't separate it. So it all goes into the grid, but yeah. I can do separate transactions. Yeah. And so like the way uh, the other type of transaction can happen, and you're starting to see this with uh, interest on uh, Bitcoin miners, and this is pretty standard for other types of um, uh, customers that would be kind of like industrial customers will do. Uh, there's a power generator right here. Uh, it's going to get built and I need to have steam and I want to buy energy and we're not even going to connect to the grid, right? And so the power generation company is going to say, this plant is producing power and steam and I'm just going to send it to you using our own wires mm-hmm. and never hit the grid. So you have 100% certainty that the power that that was generated from and if it was from a, a coal plant, you know you're consuming coal. If you are co-located with a, a wind farm, um, I'll use an example of saying that there's a 100 megawatt wind farm and in uh, power markets, the term is a capacity factor. And what that means is that, what is the capacity factor of wind farm? It's about 33%, it's different in different areas. Um, and so what that means is that on average over the course of a year is that 33% of the time, um, sorry, out of that 100 megawatt wind farm, you'll have an average of 33 megawatts. So you can be co-located with a wind uh, farm and essentially consuming just the power from the wind and just consuming as produced, when it's producing, and you know it's 100% certainty that that came from wind. But as soon as you connect to the grid, like you have any connection, then you lose all the kind of ability to say, this is 100% wind or this is 100% solar. It's more of a high probability of the mix of the electrons, where those are sourced from. But if I'm here in Texas and I'm plugged into ERCOT, I can't do a deal and sell energy to a company up in Minnesota, or can I? You can, and so it's just a financial transaction, right? And so you're making a, a financial uh, a bet, if you will, on the settlement at some other location. And then what you are taking on, if you make this, this sale, is you're taking on the risk that the price between where you are and the price where they are uh, is not going to expand or be significantly different. So there's a lot of risk. Okay, so this is a bit I don't understand because... I understand going putting it into this grid and the company's connected to it, but I'm not actually putting any energy into like this these electrons are never going to be connected to whatever's up in Minnesota, right? Mm-hmm. So how does that actually work? So it, it never gets to Minnesota. Right? It never gets to Minnesota. Never. And so it's just a financial hedge where you think that you are kind of Am I buying energy in the Minnesota? No. no. So think about it like this is like um, there's oil that's uh, I think the contract's called WTI, which is the oil from the United States. And then there's Brent, which is the oil uh, in Europe. Yeah. Um, is I can be producing uh, oil here, and I'm right next door to, uh, uh, in Cushing, Oklahoma, this WTI location, right? And so I'm going to be producing oil, and I need to find a way to say, I want to hedge my, my production risk, right? So I don't want to be just exposed to the spot price of whatever it is. Um, but the only person that will I can find a... a somebody to, to trade with me to hedge my risk is somebody that's at Brent, right? And so you have 100 barrels of oil. Um, the price of WTI is 100 and the price at uh, Brent is 110. And so you sell them Brent uh, contract. So the, the oil never made it there, but what you're betting on is that the difference between WTI and Brent isn't going to expand so much that it's going to actually cost you because there's just a financial settlement 
with the transaction that you bet on on this uh, Brent contract. Right. Okay. Energy markets are tricky, right? Yeah. Well, I, I'm still not. Do you understand it? Not fully. No. <laughs> it, it's basically just a financial instrument rather than being anything it to is. do with, with giving anyone There's, any energy. That's but, right. But, but so say the company in Minnesota, I mm. sell them at $40. Mm -hmm. um, they, pay, they pay me for it. Yeah, mm -hmm. They give me the, the X amount. Mm -hmm. um, I don't understand how I settle with the, mm -hmm. where the actual power is generated from in Minnesota. Yeah. I don't understand. Like I'm getting these for, these forty dollars mm -hmm. in. Where where am I actually paying? So you're, there's a physical market, yeah, and a financial market, yeah, right. And so the the physical market is here in ERCOT where you're injecting, yeah, and then the financial market is that you did a somebody in Minnesota, and you would choose a location in Minnesota, mm -hmm. and you would be betting on some price that's a Minnesota price, and what's going to happen is is that so say you bet that the, um, the price of Minnesota, say both Texas and there were, were $40, mm -hmm. right? And you said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a financial trade of $40. Come settlement, that settlement is gonna settle against the real-time spot price. Okay. So that is the settlement uh, index. Okay, it's, right? it's, so it's, it's, like, it's, it's like a bet. It is. It's well, just a bet. And with, so you would run your risk analysis on saying, is this bet highly correlated with the location that I'm actually producing at so that it is actually risk reducing, not risk adding. So I essentially buy contracts right. and then I sell contracts. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I think I get it. Well, you, your physical, so again, back to like physical yeah. and financial, it's like you're always pushing the electrons in the grid yeah. and you're getting a, a physical price. There's an index that's settling on that real-time price. And then financial contracts are structured on the settlement of what they think that, that uh, real-time index price will settle. Okay. There is there is one, but I still don't I still don't understand. I must be sounding like a dummy. Um, so when you talk about energy, you talk about there's a there's an input of say burning coal and there's an output of electrons, right? Mm -hmm. I understand that if I sell contracts to a company that needs it at forty dollars, mm -hmm. they're essentially I've gotten an input of cash from them. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how uh, where they're getting their electrons from and how that's being paid for. <clears throat> Yeah, that's the bit. I, so the, like, that's the connection I don't understand. So you're getting paid index, yeah, right, and then they're receiving the index because you're going to make a trade that they're going to receive that index and pay you the fixed because you don't want to take on the index price. You want to take on the fix. So the payments would be like you inject the money, inject the power in the grid. They're going to pay you index, and with your counterparty, you're going to settle on saying, "Hey, I'm going to give you the index price because I don't want it. I'd rather have your fixed price." So you're transferring the risk from you to that person on the settlement price. So am I essentially hedging across multiple markets to give me more stability where I'm producing power? If you have um, a portfolio of generation assets in, uh, say, uh, Texas, um, you want to have your hedges as close to the location where your generation is as possible. Right. Okay. Right. I see. I see. And yeah. so like, you don't want to have them spread out and say, I'm going to do some bets in, in New York. You don't want to hedge your Bitcoin exposure with... Uh, Dogecoin, <laughs> right? Or that's, that's, right a, that's a basis, right? That's a fair. Right? But when they're all going up, they seem like they're lockstep, right? But when they, when they split, right, then there can be a lot of risk. It's very similar. So you want to make sure that, you know, what you're producing, you're trying to hedge in the location that's as close as possible. And this is why, so for example, I had um, uh, a fixed price on my uh, gas and electric back in the UK that I was still paying 
a ver- relatively low price when the prices start to spike mm-hmm. because I'd essentially forward bought at a price from my supplier and mm-hmm. they'd essentially hedged and forward bought. <clears throat> and then when the price of gas started to shoot up, there was a lag between that and when my prices went up mm-hmm. because they've essentially already forward bought. So I, I kind of look at it as like the spot price, yeah. right? Is saying like, who owns the risk? Because that's that's unknown when the when it's a spot price. Um, as I mentioned, like in uh, in most uh, power pools across uh, the U.S., is like there's a price every five minutes, mm-hmm. and so somebody owns the risk of you know whatever that price is, and you can say I don't want that risk. I would rather have the fixed price, and so you're gonna transfer that risk because you'll have somebody else buys that risk. That's a financial settlement saying, hey, you take this risk. Right, so your fixed price energy bill, you say, I don't want the spot price. Right? I don't want to be kind of up and down. I just want, mm-hmm. I want to sleep well. So I want you to take that and I'm going to pay you for that. And I'm going to pay you a fixed price, which makes me feel better. You might win if that price is lower. You might lose, but I don't care. I just don't want to have that risk. So someone took on the risk then. And when the energy and gas prices started to shoot up, who was mm-hmm. the loser in this scenario? So there could be lots of losers. Yeah. If I am a retail electric provider and I've sold you power for $50 because you don't want to have the, the, the volatility, right? And so now as I'm the provider for you, so I'm on the hook, right? So I've taken on your risk, right? And so I got to make sure the way I make money is that if the actual price that settled is, is much lower than what you paid me to for, right? As a retailer, I have the option of hedging that Right, so actually kind of going to market and finding a way to kind of cover that. Or I can say, no, I'm actually quite comfortable and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear the risk. Right? And so then uh, imagine uh, a market like Texas where there's uh, many retailers, you know, big and small. And uh, some of the small retailers um, didn't hedge. Right? And then there could have been some you know, big major event like, like Winter Storm Uri in 2021 or pretend this is the same kind of market design but in, in Europe. If they didn't hedge, right, they're in a lot of trouble and they're likely out of business, right? And then you lost your retail contract because they're out of business and you got to go find somebody else that's going to now give you a new contract and it's likely going to be more expensive because, you know, this price has gone up. Well, there was a number of UK energy suppliers that did go up in smoke, didn't they, Danny? Mm-hmm. I mean, what was it, like eight big ones? Yeah. Uh, but does that th- make sense though? No, it does. It does. Um, but what actually happened is a, a number of these energy companies blew up mm-hmm. because before we just used to have, uh, you know, energy was nationalized in the country. We had British gas essentially. Mm-hmm. And when the markets became deregulated, anyone can go in and mm-hmm. uh, buy and sell mm-hmm. that gas in the market yeah. um, uh, and try and create their own efficiencies. And, and I guess actively trading but a number of these companies once the prices shot up they blew up they, they mm-hmm. but it was bulb the big one that went which was the big one? bulb bulb yeah mm-hmm. yeah um but there it, the the uk market's set up in the way that they anybody who any of the retail customers ends up being rescued i'm not sure how it works but mm-hmm. um they are protected uh, yeah. from from this happening and, and, and to kind of link that into some like you know um, bitcoin miners yeah right and to use an example is that like um when a a Bitcoin miners are connecting to the grid in Texas. There's always a physical transaction, right? And so they have the choice. And as being an industrial customer, that means a large-scale customer that's uh, deemed to be sophisticated, um, so they can take on the risk of this kind of index uh, pricing, is that they can connect to the grid and say, do you know what? I'm just going to pay the spot price, and I'm not going to do any hedge, right? I'm just going to, you know, whatever the real-time price is, that's what I'm going to pay. Or they can say, um, I'm going to try and enter into a, a long-term fixed price hedge, 
with some energy supplier, um, which is financial, right? So it's hedging their physical consumption. Um, and I'm going to buy, for example, uh, in Texas, I'm going to buy a five-year, 24-7, so round-the-clock uh, hedge of 10 megawatts. Uh, let me just insert one megawatt. We'll charge uh, one megawatt hour. We'll charge a 100-kilowatt Tesla battery 10 times, right? So that's just kind of a reference of, like, what is one megawatt hour? So 10 charges of a, of a Tesla battery. So they have a choice and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this hedge, and I'm going to do, say, $35 for my hedge, right? So they've got two transactions, again, the physical and then this financial. And so then in Winter Storm Uri, when, you know, which is kind of happening in Europe right now where these prices went up, um, they have the choice now in saying, okay, I've got this, you know, I'm a 10 megawatt miner, is I'm just going to turn down my facility, right? So I'm going to go to zero, right? Or I could, they could provide some, you know, ancillary services to grid. We can touch on them a bit, but like, assume they just turn offline. Well, that means that their physical meter that they're going to get invoiced for is going to be zero. But they have this hedge, right? And can they sell that back? They can, or they can let it settle against whatever that real-time price is, right? And so then in, uh, in 2021, that retail price went as high as $9,000 for a few days, right? And so you'll hear in the headlines that there was a lot of um, Bitcoin miners that got paid to turn offline from ERCOT, which is false, right? ERCOT doesn't pay them to turn off, is that the miner made the conscious decision when they, when they hooked up to the grid saying, do I want to transfer this risk? and have a fixed price hedge, because they didn't have to. And if the winter storm URI came through and they just turned off, there'd be no payments to that miner. But they had this financial hedge, and that hedge settles against the actual real-time price. Right, so $35, selling at $9,000 every five minutes for you know, three straight days. So a lot of them did very well because you know, they turned offline. So it wasn't like they, they gave power back to the grid, but they stopped consuming from the grid, so they actually, um, energy that was needed across other customers across Texas. They said, you guys take the power, we don't need it. It's, it's way above what, we're, what we get paid to do Bitcoin mining. So we're gonna turn off. And then they got rewarded for making their financial hedges, right? So like, so those are the two transactions. They turn off and then they got paid for this hedge, which was, um, uh, you know, kudos to them for, for having that. Fascinating. Um, if you're taking out a longer position, say a five-year position, mm -hmm. are you, do you tend to pay more because you're getting a stable price, or do you tend to pay less because you're, you get the economies of scale of buying five years worth? <clears throat> there's a couple parts to that. Um, so first, there's a credit cost, right? And so it's saying like, um, you go to the bank and you say, um, I wanna buy a $20 million home, <laughs> right? They'll be like, what's your credit? Right? If you don't have credit, they're like, well, why don't you buy a, a $200,000 home and we'll give you some credit for that, right? So the, the longer the transaction and the higher quantity, like you need to have some type of credit, right, for that. And you can, you can pay for that credit um, that they could say, we're going to charge you an extra $3 per megawatt hour, or we're not even going to sign with you. You need to go find somebody like a, a parent, right, some, some other company to sign for you. Um, so one is that credit matters and it costs for credit, right? So like it's very challenging for um, uh, startup miners to get long-term contracts um, because there's a credit cost to that, especially if it's a, a lot of megawatts. Um, so that's the first part. It's credit and it's, the cost is different for everybody. Um, the second part is that <clears throat> there is a forward curve for uh, power across, um, in Texas, there is like one primary location, which is the most liquid traded hub um, that people transact on to make these kind of hedges. Um, and so there's a forward curve for this that can go out you know, 10 years. 
Uh, and a forward curve is the same thing as like an oil market. It's like, it is everybody's best guess of the future. And you can make a bet on that and say, you know, bullshit, right? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell that, right? Or that seems really cheap, I'm gonna buy it. So like, this is like the, the standard forward curve. However, um, there is really not many natural long-term buyers of power, right? So you think about, um, well, think about for, for Bitcoin mining is like, uh, so if you're Bitcoin mining and you're producing this commodity, which is hashes, right? And you've got a whole bunch of them because you've got all these miners and you're gonna be producing a lot. And you say, okay, I got all these hashes and they're gonna be worth a fortune because look at the price of Bitcoin and you, know, you should buy this from me, right? It's like, who's your buyer, right? Like who wants to buy a five-year strip of hash rate that's delivered a certain amount every day for five years out. There's, there's no real natural buyers, right? Mm -hmm. Same as power generation, which is like, there's a whole bunch of natural sellers because we mentioned like post deregulation. So around, you know, the year 2000, um, when they lost their rate payer, right? And had the market, um, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, like when you sign a, a, a residential contract for your, for your house, Right, you're very small volume compared to a generation kind of facility, and you probably sign for one year, two year, but they've got you know 50 years of generation, right? So there's no real natural buyers to, to uh, these large power contracts, not a lot of uh, companies. So um, so typically, you know, companies will accept less in the future for it. So you can have this you know pricing curve that goes down because you know there's uh, not a lot of liquidity in the market, and they'll take less for it just because there's there's not a lot of natural buyers, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, because what it's making me think of is uh, interest rates with regards to mortgages. Mm -hmm. um, if you want a two-year fixed rate, you tend to get a lower rate than if you say take out a five-year mm -hmm. uh, fixed rate because over, you might you might be thinking, well, I'd rather have a five-year fixed rate because I know what it is, I know what I earn, and I feel mm -hmm. more stable, but you're going to pay a higher interest rate because the mortgage provider doesn't know where the interest rates will be in three, four, five years. So there's, it's a different kind of hedge. Kind of, right? Because like sometimes the interest rates in the front of the curves can be, can be lower or higher based on kind of what, uh, what behavior a government will want you to do. So for example, like uh, during COVID, they took the, the near-term interest rates to near zero because yeah. they want everybody to spend. Uh, and so then your interest rates in, in the back were, were more expensive. And there's some times where you know, they want the opposite and they'll kind of raise those. So, yeah. Okay. I think I'm starting to get it. Uh, it's, it's super complicated. Um, and there's a lot of people in Bitcoin very interested in the mm -hmm. energy markets right now. Bitcoin mm -hmm. mining itself, uh, our understanding of the role it plays, not only with securing mm -hmm. the Bitcoin network, but in supporting and helping balance energy grids. is It's a huge mm -hmm. topic of conversation. We, we're going to dig mm -hmm. into some of that. But you as an energy guy mm -hmm. coming in, also now understand understanding Bitcoin, is there any part, like any observations you've got of Bitcoiners and how they talk about energy where you think we, you know, collect, it's hard to say collectively, but things that people are getting wrong or things you're like, you don't understand what's going on here or any naivety? Um, so I will, uh, there is a bit, right? And there's, there's kind of, um, going back to a shared experience I had in kind of energy markets and kind of where the punchline would be that if Bitcoin price went to $2 million today, there's going to be a lot of problems that occur for that. Like, and, and you know, what are all the linkages that occur? Not for so us. Like, yeah. Right. But, you know, I'll kind of, you know, share a piece of that is like, um, 
so in uh, 2008, I was trading, uh, worked uh, for a power generation company, and essentially the, the gas prices kept on going up from 2000 to 2008, right? All the way straight up. So anybody that said, I'm going to hedge, meaning I'm going to forward sell, like, from 2000 to 2008, they lost money because prices kept on going up. Okay. Right? So nobody was hedging, right? And so then 2008 comes, and so the, the company that I worked for had a lot of uh, uh, coal generation, right? And what usually is the marginal unit for a, a, like a, uh, for a power pool for like that's being dispatched to meet demand is, is a natural gas unit. So we were at a coal plant and the price was $40, right? And natural gas at the time was above 10 it was, I think it was 10 or $12. And so power prices were called like $120. And so at that time, um, with the price being 120, because the price is set at the marginal unit and everybody receives that, is that you're making this really big spread between 120 and 40, right? So everybody's high-fiving, right? Um, because we, nobody, we weren't hedged and you think you're geniuses. Uh, and then 2008 happens and then there's this you know, big correction that happens from the financial crisis. But the big story was is that um, fracking came out, a new technology that opened up a whole lot of gas and gas prices never recovered. And instead of, you know, the gas price being up here for, you know, power price going here and uh, to like the 120 mark and coal 40, all of a sudden it dropped down, you know, to where coal and natural gas were competing with each other, right? And so, you know, the, the message of the story there was that like over time, prices always converge. Had they stayed at $120, right, you would have had um, coal plants <clears throat> saying, let's go build a new coal plant, right? Because there's this big spread. So we're going to add a whole bunch, like, what are the low cost resources that we can bring on that's going to actually make this margin? <clears throat> so it didn't last very long and, and that spread collapsed. So for, for Bitcoin, um, you know, it's kind of like if prices went to a uh, million dollars today, we'll say a million. Just zoomed yeah. up. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Right. And so like, so what does that mean? Right. And so it means that, um, so in, in Bitcoin mining, uh, a metric that is kind of the measurement of, you know, profitability for miner is the, the value per exahash, right? And an exahash is a, a billion, billion hashes, right? And so given the current price of Bitcoin, the blocks per day, the number of Bitcoin produced gives you kind of the revenue for Bitcoin. And then you take like the hash rate and you, you know, put it over the course of a, a day. So how many hashes were there a day and how much the revenue? And so the, that price is uh, $2.50 ballpark right now. So a new gen miner, I'm going to try and make it simple, is that uh, a new gen miner is like an S19. And um, so they're, uh, they produce about 120 exahash uh, per hour, per megawatt hour, right? So 120 times uh, 250. So they're, what is that? Uh, uh, that's 240, 300? Yeah, so right around there. And... Um, so they're making really good coin and their marginal cost of electricity is around 50 bucks, right? So they're, they're happy, right? If Bitcoin price went to a million, right? Well, the value per exahash <clears throat> would shoot through the moon because of existing kind of hash rate, right? And each of these miners would be on average making about $9,000 per megawatt hour, right? And so what happens- Sounds great for the miners. It does, Sounds right? great for the Bitcoin hodlers. <laughs> yeah, so, so $9,000 per megawatt hour, like what is the behaviors? Right? Like, what are the behaviors of what's going to happen? And so what you're going to get is, um, you know, the narrative of, you know, Bitcoin mining being flexible that will turn offline when power is too expensive. Everybody's online. They're not turning offline. Right. And so, like, these miners are not going to be kind of a, a balancing load. They're just going to be on. And it's going to be not kind of, a, you know, fabulous for grids. 
Um, you are going to now have like if you are the owner of so the value chain of mining is that there's you know the manufacturers of the hardware, um, there's the the capacity to to get sites, and then there's the miner that's mining right. And so anybody that's actually producing kind of these miners is going to say you know uh, in 2020 at the bottom of uh, the Bitcoin price, you know to buy a new S19 miner I think it's something like three thousand, and then as soon as prices bumped up it went to twelve thousand. Right, and so like if this price jumped up, then you know these miners would be hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, whatever it is, right? Because you're you're, plug, you're plugging in a printing press, right? Yeah. And so like the point is, is just like the entire value chain would like there'd be so many people kind of, you know, fighting for kind of where do I capture this margin, right? And so like an example I shared with you of saying, you know, when power price were one twenty and it came to forty, is prices always converge, right? And so like either people are going to sell Bitcoin because. Um, and I'll get a lot of hate on this from people saying that you sell your Bitcoin, but like for this thing to go jump up so high, it's going to be like, this is like uh, hard to be sustainable, right? Yeah. It's kind of like um, the example again of like oil prices, right? Like, does it make sense that oil can go from, um, you know, a hundred bucks right now and then tomorrow they were, the price of oil was a thousand bucks, right? It, it would break things, right? Like all of a sudden, you know, like the, it would have a cascade of people that got margin calls if they had like forward sold this kind of oil. It would have problems with people kind of just getting from A to B, but there's, it'd be a catastrophe. But if oil went from 100 to 110 to 150 to 170 to 120 to 130 to 140 to 160, 180, 160, right? There's a lot of benefit in this kind of like, you know, step change that happens, right? That doesn't kind of disrupt and break stuff, right? So like, uh, back to your kind of comment saying, like, what do I think is some um, some areas where I, I kind of uh, think is a little naive is just to think that, you know, we can have these Bitcoin prices go so high so fast, right? Because there's a whole lot of implications. And, you know, some uh, folks in Bitcoin might argue saying, well, it can last uh, because, you know, Bitcoin's a super scarce asset. Um, but in the same time, you'd have this massive rush of, you know, kind of hardware coming to market. You'd have a hard time finding these connections. There could be disruptions across the grid. Um, it could be a bad for branding for Bitcoin and kind of, you would be at home plugging in your computer to mine because it'd become economic uh, to mine on your computer again. So, I mean, for, we can forget about this, say, go to a million, but what you're really saying is fast increases in, rapid increases in the price of Bitcoin have mm -hmm. knock-on effects within sure. the energy market yeah. as well as knock-on effects elsewhere, but within the energy market specific. And mm -hmm. when we have a narrative of, Bitcoin miners being a load balancer, mm -hmm. that's okay when the price is stable, but mm -hmm. when the price is accelerating, they're not a load balancer because they're not going to want to switch off. Because, yeah. but can they? Can can the agreement between the miners and the grid? Can they have the agreement that they have to turn off at specific times? It doesn't matter what the price of Bitcoin is. If there's mm -hmm. a certain amount of demand on the grid, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, like, and just to kind of you know clarify again is like. You know, um, you know, similar to kind of like cars and that there's cars that go slow, like a, a Civic and a Ferrari, there's different speeds, right? Like there's miners have different kind of efficiencies and different kind of revenue uh, attached to those. And so like Bitcoin can act as a load balancer in, in a very large range, right? So like we use it, the analogy of, you know, like million dollar Bitcoin kind of was saying like same kind of uh, you know, category of, you know, thousand dollar crude, right? It just like in a fast short time. So like, um, Bitcoin mining can be incredibly, incredibly flexible on these stages all the way up. And it can even, you know, uh, be flexible if you have these big price surges where it goes 100 grand or 200 grand. But, you know, this kind of uh, 
super exponential forever, it, you know, there's some challenges on that. Um, now for, for Bitcoin being able to be controlled is like, um, there are ways, right? And so like there's, um, there's different types of load and we often hear about like demand response, right? And there's very different types of demand response, right? And so there's like retail demand response and then there is wholesale demand response. So retail demand response is, you'll hear kind of voluntary and I'm sharing that wholesale is not voluntary. I'll give some examples. Like um, to be retail demand response means that you are a miner that is connected to like, you're mining at home, okay. right? And uh, the utility company has come out with a, a time of use schedule where it's more expensive for you to consume energy uh, in the evenings and cheaper during the, the non-evening times, right? And so that is demand response. So what they're saying is change your behavior, right? Uh, we want you to consume less in the evening peak and more during the day, but that's voluntary, right? Because if you do consume in the peak, you're just gonna have to pay more, right? So there's, there's no fines for that. And the challenge with, you know, uh, retail demand response is that they don't have the, you know, kind of like the, uh, the telemetry, the, the equipment to understand what you're consuming in real time. So use examples like uh, this type of demand response would be kind of like a, a, a Honda Civic, right? It's like, and there's a speed limit, right? And um, they'll say, hey, we're going to have different speed limits at different times of day. We want you to drive faster, drive slower, but you know, you know different times of day to control traffic, uh, here's the speed limit and please help us out. Um, they're not going to know until the very end of the month what you did because they're going to do the invoicing for your billing. And they're gonna look back and say, oh yeah, actually he did have some behavioral changes, right? And now go to the, the wholesale side, right? And so think about the wholesale side as um, um, a Tesla and two Teslas, one is fully autonomous and one of them isn't, right? And so they have different equipment, right? They have different capabilities, right? And so they both have the ability for a grid operator to have visibility into what they're consuming exactly at what point in time. Right? And so there's two types of wholesale demand response. And so the first one is, uh, I want to, I don't have the flexibility to essentially kind of change my speeds during the day, but you can see exactly what I'm doing during the day. And if you need my power during the day, you can flip my breaker and turn me off. Okay. Right. Yep. And so that's called an under frequency relay. And it's essentially a shunt trip. Right. And it's the grid operator saying, saying, uh, I'm a wholesale DR. So I'm, I've, the grid operator, I'm, I'm in their, uh, under their control. And it says, if, if something happens, since you're paying me to kind of provide this kind of, uh, the same types of services you're asking from these generators to provide for, for, for backup power, et cetera, you can trip me offline uh, when you need me. So that's one type of DR. And, and the second one is the, is the Tesla that's fully autonomous, right? And what that means is that the speed limit, the grid operator is passing back and forth in real time, the speed limit, based on the actual real-time needs of the, of, of, of the roads here, right? And so, and it has to follow the instructions of the grid operator, there's no choice, right? So you are essentially kind of like on autopilot in your Tesla, and if you ever take control of the reel yourself, you're gonna get a really big fine for doing that. And the fine's gonna be uh, so big that you're not gonna wanna take your hands off the wheel. And so that's kind of where we're seeing now in these kind of uh, minds that are on the grid is that, um, you know, I know we've gotten kind of uh, tricky on this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> As I, you know what, my dad, uh, um, I've explained his power bill um, 10 times, right? And he, he's, he's frustrated often that, 
you know, the cost for the you know, transmission, the wires cost, is higher than the energy cost. And he's floored at them. He's thinking, this is just terrible, right? And, and I look at it, and I was, like, I was like, holy shit, your energy is super cheap, <laughs> right? It's, you don't know that you have the cheapest energy in the country because you're looking at the bill, right? And so the point is that, like, I've explained this bill probably 10 times, and it's, it's still kind of a hard topic for him to kind of grasp. And so I can understand uh, the complexity of these topics, right, when that's just a simple energy bill with my dad. And, and now we're talking about uh, demand response and why uh, it's transformational for a grid operator to have the control over these Bitcoin mining facilities so that they can use them to help manage, you know, kind of enhance reliability of the grid as they bring on more renewables and whatnot. Well, we'll get into the supplies, but but what we're really saying here is that the demand for energy can change very quickly. I mean, here in Texas, we've been here for the month and we've gone from warm days mm-hmm. to cold days. To tornadoes. To tornadoes. To tornadoes. Mm-hmm. But like the weather's changed quite a bit. And yeah. because of that, there are some days where we're putting the heating on mm-hmm. and there's some days that we aren't. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you can have a cold snap where there's more of a demand on on the grid for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. You also might have, I don't know, tell me if I've got this completely wrong, but there might be a huge football match on and everyone's going to be at home mm-hmm. watching at the Super Bowl, so there's going to be an increase in demand. So there's mm-hmm. there's different things that impact the, the demand, mm-hmm. but the grid always has to oversupply. Otherwise, we have blackouts maybe. <clears throat> so the, the grid is like... There's <clears throat> so the grid operator up until recently has only had control of generation. Yeah. Right. So coal plants, natural gas plants, hydro, nuclear, etc. So they get to control the generation. They have no control over load. Right. And so their responsibility is they need to dispatch this generation to exactly meet what they think is going to be for load. So they don't get to say, hey, load, you know, we don't have enough generation cues to turn down. So like as a grid operator, um, what they're trying to do is a grid as a heartbeat, right? And the heartbeat is 60 hertz, 60 hertz per second. And it has to stay there all the time. And so what the grid operator does is says, okay, we got to manage it. So it's got to be 60 hertz because if it goes down to say like 59.2, right? Just that drop, that's essentially like a machines that are connected to the grid will protect themselves because they're like, oh shit, right? Something's happening. I got to protect myself. So I'm just going to disconnect. Right? And so like, it's a cascading you know, effect that essentially gets to a blackout. So the grid operator, their job is to do real-time balancing of energy to match demand that keeps the heart rate at 60 hertz. But what if there's a massive increase in demand all of a sudden? Doesn't, so is, that it, be, is it like going running and the heartbeat goes up to 70, 80? Yeah, so like in that example, of like there's a, a massive increase in demand is that the heart rate will start to go down right? because there's not enough kind of generation being put Oh, I see what grid, you're saying. Uh, yeah, yeah right? okay. And the opposite is true, right? If all of a sudden demand comes offline, it's, it's dinner time and everybody's kind of turning off lights and stuff and you know, all of a sudden it'll go up and they're like, okay, what we got to do in that case is we got to turn our generation down. So the grid operator is going to make their best guess of a forecast about what is load going to be today given everything they know, right? And they know a lot, right? Like they have historical data that says, today's a Super Bowl. How do people behave on Super Bowl? Well, um, before the Super Bowl, this is kind of the behavior of load, and then all of a sudden people turn their ovens on. And so they got all that data that they're saying, okay, we're going to expect on the Super Bowl, given the weather for today, right, given this, the time of day, who's there, they'll probably even take into consideration who's playing. If, it's, if, 
if, if Texas is in the Super Bowl, they're, they're going to say there's going to be more people, right? If it's the Jets, no one gives a fuck. Right. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say something about Bedford soccer, but yeah. Hey, yeah. be careful. <laughs> well, man. everybody will be watching, right? Yeah, yeah, right. All 12 of us. Right, yeah. So like, they're going to have this information. They're saying, I got control of generation. The heart rate's got to stay here. And I'm going to forecast the load that's going to be. And essentially, whenever there's like an increase uh, of, of load, I got to put more generation on. And when there's a decrease, right? And that's just on the load side, right? And on top of that, in the old days, as in like the old days in like, uh, like late 90s, is that there was no such thing as wind and solar, right? So this generation stack that they had was extremely flexible, right? And meaning that uh, reliable, right? Like I can count on you to show up. I'm expecting this demand over here. And I need you to, you know, be ready to come online when I say, because we got to match this demand. You just, you know, how much coal you need to burn to generate that power. And, and the coal's on the pile, right? And the people are at the plant. They're ready to go, right? Okay. Natural gas, the same thing. Like all the people are there, all the fuel is there, right? And it can be dispatched around the clock, right? Or have, having that flexibility to turn up and turn down. So this was like, you know, late 90s generation stack, you have control of the full generation. So then renewables started uh, to come out uh, at the start of the, uh, around 2003, four, five. And then all of a sudden there's now a large portion of the grid that can be, you know, wind and solar, which is, you know, zero cost energy, which means that like when it's being produced, you can't say um, wind, I need you to turn up three megawatts and, and solar, you, I need you to turn up another two, right? Like it, you can't. Right. And so what you need to do is you need to say, you know, here's now my wind and solar. And now not only do I have to forecast you know, the demand, I got to forecast, like, is my generation going to show up? Right? right. So think about a day like uh, in Texas here recently is that um, there was, I think it was something like 60 or 70 percent of the generation for the day was was wind and solar. Right. So on the on the day, for example, was uh, call it uh, 50 gigawatts and of that 50 gigawatts about 70% of that, uh, call it like 30 gigawatts uh, and change of, of wind and solar. And so now like, if wind and solar starts to drop off here, you need to find something to back that up fast, right? And so like you say, okay, I need, uh, I need to call my coal plant. I need to call my natural gas plant, right? So I need them to come online because I've just lost this generation, right? So does that make sense on like this Yeah, no, we get complexity? that, totally yeah. get that. Right. Do they have to build in a buffer? You talk about the heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, how much of a buffer do they have to build in just in case there's a sudden demand on there? Uh, so the, the punchline on that is like, it is exactly matching real-time demand. However, um, there's, you, you'll hear um, uh, there's losses that happen between the point of generation all the way to where it's consumed. Yeah, yeah. but uh, Harry explained that to us. Yeah. It's like, you know, you lose electrons. That's right, but, but it's not, uh, in time to Bitcoin miners, is like if, if they connected the transmission voltage, right? That means, so for example, uh, generation, transmission lines, transformer, distribution lines, transformers. The closer you are and the less amount of transformer you use, the less amount of losses. So like if your transmission connected, you lose like 2% losses. If your distribution connected, it could be something like seven and a half. So there's a big difference. So like as a grid operator, bringing that back is saying, if the tire demand across, uh, we'll use easy math, it's like, is 100 megawatts, right? They might be producing 104, 105 to make up for all those losses, mm -hmm. but they're exactly matching what the demand is at that time. 
isn't there like a risk therefore that they predict it slightly wrong and there's over demand or what happens in that situation? So you've done a really uh, creative way to introduce ancillary services. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so that is insurance, right? So you were talking about kind of, do they have kind of like, do they overproduce? And so what they have is they actually have, uh, it's called contingency reserves, right? And so those are like insurance products, right? And saying like, um, so I'm going to use like the grid of the past, so like in the late nineties and says, um, as these markets are being deregulated, um, FERC came out with these, FERC is like the governing body for kind of energy across the United States. Um, these are the required four essential ancillary services that you need to have from, from generation. Um, and the grid operator goes and procures those from power generators. So uh, I'll walk you through those in a simple way. It's like there's regulation and regulation is, is that like they're managing the kind of like the, the, the 60 Hertz and they're going to dispatch their generation accordingly. They're going to send them a signal, but there's sometimes they're off a little bit, right? So they need to have backup. They said, I need to have like um, 3% of what I expect load to be on standby that I can control it to balance the system. Okay. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's regulation. So that's kind of uh, for that uh, insurance product. Um, and the second one is it's the, oh shit, something bad happened, right? It's the contingency reserve, right? And saying like, um, I lost a nuclear power plant, just tripped offline. It was 800 megawatts, which is very large. Um, and I need to have something that can step up right away, right? And so that these ones are called, um, they'll call them a 10 minute spinning reserve. Right, and then they'll call another one is uh, thirty-minute spinning reserve. Right, and there's some other names for them, but those are kind of the categories of saying. There's what this, are they though? Where, where does that power come from? What is that generation? So those are power generation resources that are connected to the grid. And so, say you're a power generator, right? And you've got like a you're you're a natural gas plant, right? And your natural gas plant's a hundred megawatts. You can either sell energy, which means I'm gonna you know fire up my turbines and I'm going to produce hundred megawatts or you can sell energy and then provide some ancillary services and be on reserve. So you, you have, you essentially have the buffer, which is an insurance. So you give the grid operator insurance, yeah. right? So, cause you're saying some of the grid for the, like the energy, but you've sold them this, you know, it's called capacity or ancillary services to the grid operators just in case. Okay. So you're not actually producing it, but you can produce it at a click if required. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's online, it's ready. So it's interesting because I had this uh, perception that say, uh, how much, how much uh, does Austin, how much power does Austin use? Do we know? Or Texas? Um, so Brad Jones, CEO of Ercot mentioned yeah. the other day, uh, about the Bitcoin mining in Austin. And I think, I think probably I'm going to get this wrong is, uh, call it one and a half gigawatts. So 1500 megawatts. Okay. Say so it's 1500 megawatts. Is, is that daily? Um, that's, for the like uh, for this exact moment. Yeah. Right? Okay. So like. And so in my head, I was like, well, maybe they produce like twenty percent more just in case. But mm -hmm. actually, what you're saying to me is that the network is so advanced, they've got so much good information mm -hmm. that they run it as a, a really really efficient mm -hmm. uh, network with a backup of insurance services just in case they require it. But it's actually a very efficient network. Very. Yeah. Okay. But this. A bit more variability in it now because we've got energy coming from renewables, mm -hmm. solar and wind, which mm -hmm. we know if the wind isn't blowing, mm -hmm. you don't have the energy and the sun isn't shining. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have uh, the solar energy being created. So you you have essentially insurance services for those as well, or the ability to mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, okay, let's try and imagine the scenario where it was 100% renewable because I think that's going to be easier to explain for my next scenario. 100% mm. renewable, but it's obviously not 100% reliable. Mm-hmm. What, what is the scenario for providing power in that scenario where maybe the wind isn't generating enough or the solar isn't generating enough? Is it with the with with renewables you do have to have an oversupply, mm-hmm. and are we looking at things like batteries to be able to store mm-hmm. for these these scenarios? So maybe I'll kind of um, try and take pieces of that. Yeah. Right. So like, um, so pretend that all the technology that existed was. Uh, coal plants, gas plants, uh, gas plants, um, and the renewables, <clears throat> and yeah, so th- that's the mix, right? And so then on this one day, you have all renewables. We're, we're saying the batteries aren't here, demand response isn't here. On a day where it's it's all renewables, you need to have some type of resource that's there on standby that can provide for that. Um, in in power grids, what they do is they model for the largest contingency, right? So like, what is the the biggest? Oh shit, right? And so they take that and then they take that times two, right? That's how they model it, right? So the two worst, two worst things happen. And so the grid operator will look at the mix and say, hey, we've got this large solar facility online and it's a very large amount. So we need to have at least twice the amount of that kind of as backup. But if you only got wind and solar online, right? You don't have that ability. So what they're gonna have to do is they're gonna say, okay, how much do we need to have? Okay, we're now gonna have to put the generation online and that generation, the, the coal and natural gas has to be online because we need to be able to call on it. And we're going to curtail the wind and the solar, the excess amount, because we need to be able to, you know, people are learning right now is that, you know, there's been this kind of big push for low cost energy and they're now kind of switching to saying reliable low cost energy. So reliability mm-hmm. is a very big thing. And so for reliability, which is the response of the grid operator, they don't care about price. There's reliability and they run this auction. They're going to, you know, have this generation that's online that's coal or natural gas. And then they're going to ask the wind and, or, or the solar to, essentially disconnect from the grid, curtail, right? So just, you know, uh, spill the energy, waste the energy. So that's kind of that scenario. Okay. Okay. Um, Now we'll say that you have uh, a grid that is uh, wind and solar, uh, and now you've got, we'll say batteries, right? And so, um, so do you mind if I do a frame of just kind of like kind of- Please do. Yeah, okay. So just, uh, I think that, I think we need to reframe, you know, mining. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, we there seems to be it's my observations and part of my opinion is it seems like a, a very easy attack vector to come at it from the energy side. It's like we need to shut it down, right? And so like it feels like we are on defense, right? For what we, you mean here? Sorry, is that the fud that comes out is that Bitcoin miners use X amount of energy. The mm-hmm. same as Norway uses, mm-hmm. and this is a huge waste and bad for the environment. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we're having to defend it as a good use of energy, right? So that feels like a lot of like, uh, like defensive, right? And so like, I feel like it needs to, um, it'd be wise of us to kind of do this as a reframe. And um, so I'll share a little bit is that around some of the goals that are occurring around kind of like decarbonization um, and tying back into, instead of defending kind of is this just or not, let's say that this is actually you know, helping with this goal of decarbonizing energy. Um, so in the IEA as a net zero emissions uh, report and saying, you know, uh, the world is decarbonizing energy, right? And whether people agree with it or disagree with it, it doesn't really matter because the parade is in motion and it's picking up speed, right? 
And so what countries are doing is that they're making these large pledges of saying, we are going to be net zero emissions by 2050. And I think it's something like out of all the emissions in the world, like 70% has been pledged as this commitment to net zero emissions. So in that case of having net zero emissions, like what needs to happen is you need to electrify everything, right? You need to move away from you know, combustion engines and, and, and cars and go to EVs, et cetera. And you're gonna do like a three X in your electricity needs, right? So that's massive. Why, why three X? Um, so for the last uh, 10 years, electricity demand has been very flat here in North America, right? But if you're gonna electrify everything, that means that you know, what we use right now for fuel in our cars is now gonna go into EV. So you need electricity for the EV, okay. right? Heat that's kind of in building that comes from say natural gas is gonna be electric, right? So you're creating a, a massive amount of demand, assuming that you can get that electricity as like low carbon electricity. Okay, I understand, yeah. yeah. Okay, and so that scenario is you're gonna do a, a 3X of, of electricity demand around the world. Simultaneously, you're gonna essentially retire all of your, uh, your coal plants and fossil fuel generation, right? Which is your reliable generation, right? And you're gonna replace it with a 15X in wind and solar capacity, right? And so what the IEA is saying is that <clears throat> to do this, uh, and you talked about insurance products, it's saying like, you're gonna need a hell of a lot more insurance, right? Because you've just 3X'd your demand, you've removed your flexible resources from coal and natural gas, you've added wind and solar, so you need to have uh, about 4X more flexibility, like resources that can be dispatched up and down. And of this flexibility for right now is the majority of this comes from conventional generation. And demand response and batteries right now represent 1%. Wow. In the IEA's you know, 2050 scenario is batteries and demand response are gonna have an oversized role where they're gonna represent about 50% of all flexibility with 30% coming from batteries and 20% from demand response. So we need to do the demand response right now is to do a 20X, right? It's something like from 100 gigawatts to like 21, hundred, uh, you know, 2,100 gigawatts, right? So you, you kind of step back and say, you know, these countries are making pledges and, and, and not everybody knows kind of what that means. Like, what are the implications of, you know, it feels good to say it, right? But like, what does that mean? Um, and so what it means is that uh, you need to have a tremendous amount of more flexibility in saying, okay, you know, hey, country, right? You have pledged uh, net zero emissions. And, you know, to do that, they're saying that you need demand response. Is that right? And so yeah, we need a lot more demand response. It's like, good, because we're going to go get you the best type of demand response that is super flexible that you can call on anytime you want. And this is us kind of serving that kind of larger goal of providing flexibility to these grids in transition that without that flexibility, you can't do it, right? So it's a reframe of saying, you know, instead of making this a, about Bitcoin's a really good use of energy because um, right now- it's good money. Right? But, you know, like, and, and honestly, it's like, um, there's about 12 gigawatts of, of total global demand, like 12 gigawatts of energy being consumed around the clock-ish for Bitcoin. And I mentioned about if Bitcoin goes to a million, all the people that are gonna start mining and kind of the implications on that. And so like in that future, it's like 200 gigawatts or 300 gigawatts, a very big number, right? And so in the future, Bitcoin will consume a lot of energy because everybody sees it as really valuable, right? And so wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually turn that narrative from like uh, mining is the sin to like, mining some I have a savior, right? Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy, 
Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today we have Level. Now as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Well, we talked about this previously. One of the super interesting things about this is mining has been the sin. It's the dirty side of Bitcoin. It's the easiest attack vector. I mean, there's lots of different attack vectors, Mm -hmm. but this has been a consistent one especially mm-hmm. in a time where climate change is a huge issue mm-hmm. that people want to attack Bitcoin mining. But we get to do two things at the same time. We get to actually make Bitcoin mining part of the decarbonization mm-hmm. by allowing it to uh, support that flexibility. And at the same time, <laughs> expand the Bitcoin network and mm-hmm. grow the Bitcoin network. So we get to do the two at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think that re- reframing is right. 
I think it just hasn't really landed for people. I don't think mm -hmm. people, I think if somebody is thinking about climate change, they tend to think it in the most simple terms. We're burning a lot of fossil fuels mm -hmm. and that's putting carbon in the atmosphere. We need to stop doing that. But they ha none of these people, if I asked any of my friends, none of them are going to understand that, oh, great, well, we need this massive increase in uh, wind and solar mm -hmm. and perhaps nuclear. Uh, we're going to need this massive increase, but they don't understand demand response. They don't understand flexible load. They don't understand how grids work, and they don't understand the role Bitcoin mm -hmm. mining can play being part of that. Mm -hmm. So it's actually quite a complicated answer. It makes sense to us because we spend time talking about it. Mm -hmm. But communicating that out, you know, how grids work and mm -hmm. what mining plays, is actually quite complicated. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the challenges I think we face. It's a huge challenge. Um, and you mentioned about kind of like this resource mix and kind of how do you, like, that's where I started before I went over here is that, um, and, and we watched this video earlier, and it was with like Brad Jones, who's an interim CEO with ERCOT, and it's saying, um, what do grid operators think about Bitcoin, right? And so I watched this the other day, and it just came out, my jaw dropped, right? It just absolutely dropped because it was essentially, you know, Brad Jones, who really understands kind of the ERCOT grid, of course, he's, he, he leads ERCOT. And then, you know, what he said in the video where he started off is saying that like, um, he called it crypto mining, but Bitcoin mining is a, is a great opportunity for us. Right, and for context on that is, ERCOT right now has approximately 10 gigawatts of solar. So like their average demand is uh, 45 gigawatts. And so they have about 10 gigawatts of solar. Um, over the next 18 months, they're gonna go to 20 gigawatts. And so I was, I was on a phone call with, with Brad Jones and it was uh, the Texas Blockchain Council had put this together and on the call, um, Brad Jones was saying, hey, listen guys, um, just so you know, you don't have to sell me on Bitcoin. I don't own any. I'm risk adverse, but I understand completely how valuable Bitcoin mining can be to this grid. Right? And that's where he shared the stat on kind of, we have 10 gigawatts now, we're going to 20 gigawatts. And for flexibility is that there's, um, there's four types of flexible type of resources. There's your, your regular generation, there's your storage they can have, which can be like hydro in a dam or can be batteries. Um, there can be interconnections, which is like uh, free flowing electrons between kind of neighbors. And then there's demand side management, like demand response. So in Texas, they don't have interconnections with other systems. They're very unique. Mm. So ERCOT is an electrical island. It could very well be just an island on its own. It's disconnected from, from the rest of the grid, aside from like a small, some small inner ties that are DC ties, that just direct current ties. And so they don't have any hydro either, right? So like most areas like the Pacific Northwest has got hydro, there's some up in New York. Texas doesn't have any, right? And so you're saying you're gonna Retire that's coal, retire that's natural gas. I don't have any interconnections. I don't have hydro. I need batteries and I need demand response, right? And so it was really fascinating to kind of watch Brad talk about Bitcoin mining because like some of his words were um, that when demand is flexible, right? It's able to, he talked about how Texas is a great resource for wind and solar and there's an abundance of wind overnight. And uh, Bitcoin miners have been locating in these areas and essentially soaking up this excess wind because there was too much for the grid that it couldn't handle. So in, in his words are saying, instead of curtailing this great resource, they're able to consume that and to improve the economics for these wind developers so they can build more. And then when price changes and it's at a point where the Texas customers need it, they're quick to turn down, right? And so this is, you know, again, like the CEO of ERCOT. Um, 
And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, this type of video can be, you know, watched by policymakers, right? Because it's saying, if I'm a policymaker and I'm saying, um, I, I'm worried because there's people <clears throat> uh, uh, telling me that they're worried about Bitcoin mining is going to consume their energy and there's going to be blackouts, right? What do I tell them, right? And this is an example of saying, and we use the example of retail demand response and wholesale demand response. Wholesale is where the grid operator has control of your load and can uh, have flexibility for you know, sending you signals to turn up, turn down, and whatnot. And so the CEO of this grid that's attracting all of the Bitcoin mining right now that's catching headlines, that just occurred this winter storm, Yuri, that you would think that you know, the, the CEO of this power grid would be like, leave, we, we, need, we, need, we, need, uh, you know, we need to keep that power for ourselves. And he's viewing it as the same way that I kind of shared in that framework that says, um, as you integrate higher levels of renewables into your grid, and the sweet spot's about 25%. When you pass 25%, you start to encounter a lot of issues and you need to start you know, redefining the rules and coming up with new insurance products. And so ERCOT's doing that right now, right? And so they're creating some new rules and they're creating new insurance products for this fast ramping. And you said they one day they got to 70% came from renewables. That's right. That's incredible, that, really. And, and so that example is like, you know, last year was 27% renewables on average, right? So like across the entire year, 27% of all megawatts, megawatt hours were produced by wind and solar, which means that, you know, there's some days that it was like 2%. There's some days that were like 55%, right? So it, it swings, right? But mm -hmm. the, the average is 27. So that means that there's going to be some days where you have all renewables and you got to manage, you know, we talked about, you know, forecasting load, right? The power system is now being driven by like, what does my mix look like? You know, what is wind and solar going to do, right? What resources do I need to have online to make sure that I can serve this part over here? So where people are worried about climate change, they're worried about the amount of carbon that goes into the atmosphere. Um, and I've on this podcast tried to speak to a range of people. Um, I spoke to people who understand the climate and climate scientists, but I've also got uh, Alex Epstein coming on the podcast soon, who's written the book, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He and Marty Benton came on the show. Their worry is, is that if we uh, demonize fossil fuels, we risk destroying the grid or we risk going into periods where there isn't enough power generation. Mm -hmm. We've seen the issues that have happened in Germany recently when they decommissioned all their nuclear facilities relying on uh, Russian mm -hmm. uh, natural gas to power their, I think it's natural gas to power their grid. Um, should people be worried about this or is this is this a red herring? Should we w be worried about demonizing uh, fossil fuels? And is there a risk that if we try and go too far to renewables that the grid can fail, it's more mm -hmm. likely to fail? Uh, and in doing so, if the grid does fail, we know that has a massive implication on society. The position that I have is like, it's a, it's an and statement of, you know, like, it's not like, is it A or B or C or D? Like, it's like, it's A, B, C and D and you kind of find out what, what the solution is. Um, so I think about the world should be grateful that there were some countries that were early leaders in doing this energy transition because he who goes first, he, she go, who goes first uh, is going to teach you the lessons, right? And so then, you know, what came out of uh, say that some of the stuff around Germany is saying, like, what do you need to do different that was didn't work over there, right? And so, like, now there's, you know, there's uh, research that's being published that's becoming very front of mind and uh, grabbing attention. I'm seeing a lot of academic papers written around this, which is just as power systems integrate higher levels of renewables, 
you know, what is the actual way that you need to incorporate more flexibility through the grid, through different types of market reforms, which is the new rules, right? And then also like new products, like, you know, my punchline on this is that um, others went first, they're showing us the way, and we can't do this all at once super fast, right? We, we can't just go kind of like the example where I said like, oil going from 100 to 1,000 or Bitcoin going from, you know, uh, today's price to a million, right? Like it needs to have some type of kind of a plan to it. You don't have a plan with Bitcoin price, but there needs to be a plan on saying, how do you integrate more renewables? What do you need more for batteries? What do you need more for demand response? How do you make it so that you're not dependent on some, you know, there's some risk in your system where you're kind of, you know, handcuffed, right? And so, so the, <clears throat> the message I'd say to kind of like, um, you know, kind of the Marty Bents there is that um, I'm pro like fossil fuel generation. It works, right? And we just need to have a plan on how do we make this, you know, transition. Um, I'll share a little bit about like the what's the uh, what's the where, what's the prize here? Like there's a big prize, right? And it's that so solar is you know semiconductors, which means it's a it's a technology and it's improving. And so for the first time ever, right, we are now actually manufacturing energy, right? And the solar costs are going at a pace where I think since like 1975 when they first started, or somewhere around there, it's like the learning rate, which is the, you know, for every doubling of capacity, what percentage decrease in cost did it have? And over the past like uh, 50 years or whatever that is, it's, it's averaged something like 30%. And for the last decade, it's been like 35. And so we're not a really low price of solar, right? And, you know, if we get to a point where the cost of solar becomes near zero, right? Which it trends down to because it's a technology, right? And we get to something like a, a $5, solar price, well, that just opens up a whole bunch of things we can't even imagine, right? Like, what are some things that you can do with near zero cost energy? Like, uh, uh, not an expert in this space, but on hydrogen production, all of a sudden becomes extremely economic from renewables and how that can be now used for hydro, uh, for hydrogen generation and whatnot. Um, so you can look at that and saying like, in these energy transitions, as you're incorporating more solar, and as these Bitcoin miners are essentially you know, partnering and taking new offtakes with these solar projects that wouldn't have been built otherwise. They're helping accelerate that, you know, capacity doubling, which is lowering this price and kind of getting to this point that, you know, near zero energy, and, and, and I'm thinking like, call it 50 years out, right? So it's, it's not like a, a short term, but, you know, imagine what that looks like 50 years from now and there's zero cost energy and we found ways to harness it and to kind of use that for uh, different kind of applications and, and, and production, whatnot, like it's, it's truly remarkable. So, yeah. So my take from you in this is there's none of this is binary. It's not, we should just have lots of, uh, uh, coal power plants just so we're protected and we shouldn't just immediately imagine we're going to transition to renewables. What is happening is the percent of the mix coming from renewables is growing mm -hmm. and the grids are adapting to that and mm -hmm. adapting to a more flexible, uh, load. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that with the different insurance products and also by using uh, Bitcoin miners to actually help with that load balancing. So it's really, this is just an evolution of the grids. That's right. And, and I would say that uh, what's important start point is that it's, it's reliability first. Yeah. Right. Low cost energy afterwards and like super bold font on reliability. So like, how do you make grids reliable in this transition? What are the things, what are the, the levers that you need to have? And, and Brad Jones talks about this, but like what levers need to be available for you to manage this transition? And then you go to low cost energy, right? And so then 
on the fossil fuel side is saying, if you're sacrificing reliability that you don't have the reliability, don't remove those, those, <laughs> that's, those reliable assets, right? And so you want to keep that. Do you think we can get to 100% renewable and be reliable <clears throat> and low cost? Um, again, a- anchoring on uh, the 2050 mark, I've seen some, what some of these um, energy mixes look like, and, and I think they're possible, right? And it's hard to believe it's not going to be short term, it's not going to be fast, right? But in this kind of like the future that you can have um, 70% wind and solar, you can have uh, you know, 15% hydro, uh, hydro, right, which is uh, mm-hmm. water. Uh, and then you can, in this future, again, of low cost energy, right, where it's, uh, remember, aluminum used to cost more than gold, right? And all of a sudden, Arc Furnace invented electricity and- Hold on, and, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It, it was something like- um, are, you, are you talking about aluminium? Uh, <laughs> aluminum like cans and used for like airplanes and pop cans and stuff yeah, a- yeah. A- aluminium uh, do you know we call it aluminium soccer right <laughs> yoga yeah. <laughs> yeah tomato yeah right. okay aluminum alu- yeah. I think actually I prefer aluminum yeah. sounds yeah. cooler bioluminescence yeah aluminum okay Alum- yeah. so aluminium was yeah. more expensive to make than gold I didn't know this yeah and it was like it was um uh, um, what do you call them, like the fork spoons, utensils, uh, were made from aluminum because it was very prestigious because it was super expensive, huh. right? And then that changed when it was really affordable to make aluminum and then all of a sudden gold took top, top spot, right? It was more scarce, uh-huh. right? And so like what happens with, you know, what does $5, $5 energy do to like to the world, <laughs> right? Like what are things that can be done that couldn't be done because they're uneconomic, right? And so I, I'm tying back into this like, in this IEA uh, kind of view of the future. And I use that because I don't want it to be like, this, this is my perception of the future. There's, there's reports like IRENA and IEA. And, and in that future, they, they say that there's like 10% of generation-ish comes from hydrogen uh, generation, which means that hydrogen got so cheap along the way that it became economic, that you could actually use that for your, your f- providing some of this flexibility in the future. So you have hydrogen generation, you have batteries, you have demand response. And the conventional generation right now, the, the coal and the natural gas, it goes from something like you know, 55% to less than one. So it you know, flippens the demand response in the batteries, right? And so that's kind of the, the direction that I kind of see. With, okay. Without um, Bitcoin mining and the demand response, do you think it would be possible for them to get there? Yeah, so I, I think that there's, it's harder. Um, I think that this accelerates it. Um, the example is, is that, you know, for... 20% come from demand response, right? So like, what are the current applications of demand response and what are the, um, you know, where do they get a lot of the value from this? And so give a couple examples is that, um, uh, I forget the name of this report, I was just recently reading on, on this, but flexibility from demand response. Um, so the, the, the ultimate type of demand response, uh, flexibility from demand response is something that has like, uh, it's energy intensive on one process, right? One process. Right? Because that way you can just stop and turn that thing and it's, it's not like an assembly line of things that are all connected. So we'll start with like a, like a steel, right? And so steel has an arc furnace and so there's uh, the melting of steel. There's a, I think it's called a steel, a ladle of some sort, but very electricity intense. And then it goes downstream. There's like 10 processes all the way to the end. And so if a grid operator, for example, says um, a nuclear power plant tripped offline, we need backup power, right? the steel or even aluminum, they can provide it, but they can only do it for about two hours because, you know, if they turn everything offline, 
right, then all of a sudden it affects kind of, you know, what they were doing in their production, right? So like the steel starts to harden, right? Yeah, and here's a chart here, it just kind of shows it. So these are the, the processes, right? Okay. And you see there's the melt shop that has the arc furnace and the lateral furnace and it steps all the way down, right? So it's, it's an assembly line. Okay. Right? So and, do these assembly lines run 24 hours? Yeah, so these are kind of like uh, industrial facilities. And you know, you often hear in the news that these types of customers get low cost energy and they get usually get better rates because they're consuming larger volumes and they're helping kind of fill demand in the morning times when there's no demand. Huh. Um, that's right. Okay. So if you look at the steel plant and cement plant, is that if you need to call on these resources, you know, for the steel plant, you can get you know almost 96%, which is a lot of, of peak reduction, right? But the challenge is that you can only get that for about two hours because they got to essentially get the electricity back on to kind of keep the heat on the arc furnace. Otherwise, they essentially shut everything down, mm -hmm. which is a whole massive process. And then to get it all back going, it's... Totally. Right. People okay. and processes, coordination, uh -huh. right? So like it's, it's a lot of people involved, a lot of processes involved. <clears throat> Cement plant is the three hours. Yep. So you can see that there's two uh, energy intense processes, the quarrying, the cement mill. Uh -huh. And so like they don't have as much of a concentration at one location and they have you know, interdependencies all the way down. So in this example, you can do it for, for three hours, but you're only getting about 70%. Okay, but the evil Bitcoin mining is a single process, uh -huh. very energy intensive on one, app, one process. And it's a simply just turn off and for as long as you want, right? Here's an example of um, uh, batteries and uh, Bitcoin mining as, as, as a uh, flexible load. Um, in the future, we need both. It's not an A, a yeah, or yeah. B, it's both, right? And there's different use cases that the battery wins. A Bitcoin mine can't store energy and inject it back in the grid if you have a, a black start and you need to inject it. Can't do that, right? So, you know, win for the battery. Um, but if you're in West Texas and, you know, let's say you're on like a, it's a very windy week, super windy. Um, and it's so windy that, you know, there's not enough demand in that area and all the power lines that are moving, you know, across West Texas to kind of the major load centers are full. So you've got uh, 2,000 extra megawatts around the clock, right? That's, so these 2,000 megawatts being produced every hour that's extra. If you have a battery, Right, the battery and, and pretend, well, let's use an example of a thousand megawatts. Um, so say you have a battery and, and pretend it's the biggest battery in the world, it's a thousand megawatts. I don't think there's anything close. They're usually smaller, but um, it's a thousand megawatt battery uh, and it can do four hours. So you're gonna get a thousand times four, so 4,000 megawatt hours, right? And then it has to stop. And then it can't do anything else for the wind. It can't consume the energy. They have to curtail it, right? Because there's nowhere to go, right? So you just had like you know, 96 hours, Right? And for 92 of those, you had to curtail the wind, and for four hours, you could consume with the battery. Because the battery had to wait for prices to come back to above zero or where the wind stops blowing. Otherwise, when it injects the power in the grid, it's gonna make things worse. Okay. Right? And then insert second is like you have a thousand megawatt uh, Bitcoin mining load that has flexibility. So in this example, uh, 96 hours, and so that, that mine can consume a thousand megawatts every single hour, all the way to the end. Right? And so they just consumed 96,000 megawatt hours versus the battery, which was 4,000. So now kind of relate those in payments, right? There was 96,000 megawatt hours that received payment for that energy. And in the, in the first one, there was 4,000 megawatt hours, right? So this is the example of where it can kind of soak up the excess wind that would have just been curtailed had otherwise. And curtailed means wasted. But when the Bitcoin miners turn off and they can do it instantly mm -hmm. and... 
is there a period of time where it becomes because I don't understand the full commercial relationship between the miners and say the grid or the uh, mm-hmm. the those who are the generating the energy, but if you turn around to them and said, "Oh, we need you to turn off for a week," that's a lot of time they're not mining. Are they? Is the commercial relationship set up in a way whereby they still are being paid whilst they're turning their machines down, or mm-hmm. are they getting just such a low rate mm-hmm. when they're on that mm-hmm. it that they can they can turn off? Like, what's yeah. the whole commercial relationship? Here? So they're they're similar to a power generator, right? Is it like there? There's no kind of uh, ERCOT's not paying them to turn off. It's a it's a signal. The price signal is saying turn off, right? So for the example of we shared about for like a, a power generator can either produce energy or kind of like backup power, right? And so like in the energy market, like the way that um, uh, example ERCOT would tell a Bitcoin miner to turn offline is saying, um, so as of today, like the uh, the break-even point for an S19 miner is about $250. Uh, the break-even point for an S9 miner is like 80, right? And so if the price came out in real time and it was $120, the S9 miner says, too rich for my blood, I'm off, right? Because I'm not gonna you know, pay you more for than what I'm gonna get in return. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense, right? Like it's like, you know, you give me uh, 10 bucks and I give you something that's not beneficial, I give five, right? Like you're not, it's not a value to you. And, but the S19 miner is going to stay online, right? Because it's still kind of economic for, for that miner to be online. If the price goes above 250, right, the miner's going to be like, okay, you can have this power too, because, you know, why would I consume something that costs more? So this example of, you know, energy side, where, you know, they're actually following an instruction from ERCOT and they have uh, what they're, the price of energy that they have. And just on the energy side is that they're going to react and say, this is, this is above my cost. Right, so ERCOT changes the price. That's right. As they're... As the demand changes, uh, that's right. Yeah, and, and and prices to drive a behavior. Yeah, right. Okay, and so therefore the miners can't forward buy the energy for two years at a fixed price because they wouldn't be able to load balance them. That's the way the yeah. contract works. Well, you're interesting. You're, you're injecting complexity here now. Yeah, I know. Right? But I'm just saying yeah. this. Like, if I was the miner, I would want. You know, if I've got to switch off, mm-hmm. yeah, I might be able to switch off for a day or two. If I had to switch off, say, for a month, that's. Mm-hmm. I'm losing money but, as a as yeah. a mine. So remember, like the the hedge. So the example, yeah. like the miner that says, "I'm going to buy a fixed price." Yeah. Right. And so this example where you know the miner is online, and all of a sudden the prices are above you know my break even. I'm like, this is awesome, right? Because I'm actually getting paid the real time price. So here, with my miner switched off. That's right. Huh. Right. I okay. Saw the, I saw the light bulb, man. Well, that's good. Close. Yeah. I'm, I'm close. I, yeah. I think what's going to happen is we're going to have a little chat afterwards, and I'm going to mm-hmm. be like. Do I fully get this? But I, I think I do. I think I do. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, look, it's fascinating. Do you, see, do you see a scenario where the grid itself may choose to start mining or the, there's a merger between the generation companies and miners mm-hmm. or miners become generators or generators become miners or even the, the, uh, the, the suppliers you know uh, i have shell say in the uk so i buy my energy off they also become miners like where do you see this going because we've seen it in that some exchanges bitcoin exchanges are starting to look like banks mm-hmm. and some banks are looking like they might start becoming bitcoin exchanges do you see anything happening between miners and and the energy market there was news today of exxon mining okay what's that can you show us yeah yeah let me pull it up Danny might already have an answer for us yeah. on this. All right, what's this? Yeah. Uh, so for people listening, 
Exxon Way is taking gas to Bitcoin Pilot to four countries. Okay, Exxon Mobil Corp is running a pilot program using excess natural gas that otherwise be burned off from North Dakota oil wells. Oh, this is flaring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To power cryptocurrency. No, to power Bitcoin mining operations <laughs> and is considered doing the same at other sites around the globe, according to people familiar with the matter. The oil giant has an agreement with Crusoe Energy Systems, Inc. to take gas from an oil well pad in the back and shell basin to power mobile generators used to run Bitcoin miners, mining servers on the site said the people who asked not to be named because the information is a public. The pilot project, which launched in January 2021 and expanded in July, uses up to 18 million, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Anything else interesting there, Dan? I think you've basically got the most Yeah, yeah. We continue... Look, keep going. We continuously evaluate emerging technologies aimed at reducing flaring volumes across our operation. Exxon expects to meet the World Bank's call to end routine flaring by 2030. So that... Are they... (laughs) Are they actually doing the mining themselves? They're not, are they? doesn't look like it. But the point being is they're seeing this now, and that's mm-hmm. Exxon, mm-hmm. who in the 1970s, their scientists realized that putting carbon in the atmosphere would uh, increase the temperature of the Earth. Thank you, Nathaniel Rich. <laughs> uh, I'm going to piss a few people off there. But yep, so mm-hmm. back to my question, do mm-hmm. you see any of these mergers? Yes, right? And it's, it's kind of like, um, and people are realizing that like Bitcoin mining is energy, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's all energy, right? And so like, um, so think about like you are, uh, you run a power generation company, right? And uh, the way it works for you, we talked about like you inject your power into the grid and you receive what they, what they give you. No, you don't get to have any say in it. It's just whatever the price is, it is, right? So imagine all of a sudden there's, well, this is for the first time ever, there's a second customer that will buy as much as you can produce, right, for whatever the volume, the right size fitting for you want, uh, and, you know, pretend this is somebody coming to you, and you have a say in what the price is, right? So this is either, I'm going to have somebody come to my site who's a miner, and I'm going to, you know, have an option, or I'm going to say I'm going to have mining on on my site, and I'm going to choose. I'm going to say, which customer is willing to give me more for my energy, right? And so I'll use an example of, like, uh, in Ontario, which is where my uh, Ontario, Canada is like, that's where I, I, my focus area for uh, in power, uh, power trading. Um, they have a lot of nuclear power, right? And so they've got, um, I think it's like 12 nuclear power plants. Uh, they've got a whole bunch of hydro and they've got a bunch of wind. And there's something that's called surplus base load generation. And that, that's a, a, an announcement from the grid operator saying, we got way too much generation that we don't have enough demand and export capacity that we actually need to do something to fix this. And so what they do is they actually have the nuclear plants ramp down for like six hours. And so nukes don't ramp. They're not designed to ramp, yep. right? And so they had to kind of come up with a process to essentially you know, take some nukes offline, as in ramp them down slowly, and then keep them at the same, and they ramp them back up. Now, imagine you know, there's an option that says, you know, and there's two benefits on this one, saying, I'm a nuclear power plant. And instead of dispatching down, and you know, there could be some payments that they're getting on Terra that don't show up, but pretend that there's the choice is $0 for ramping down. It's going to say, I'm going to put on, I'm a, an 800 megawatt nuclear power plant. I'm going to put on 400 megawatts of Bitcoin mining, right? And then the scenario, and instead of ramping down, you say, well, I'm just going to you know, push my, my, my power to this mining facility. And so now what you've done is you just create like a, a second customer 
that you weren't just kind of forced to say whatever the grid's going to take, you're going to take. And there's a second part is that, so we talked about what types of resources are, are flexible. And so flexibility is from usually from like fossil fuels for dispatching up and down. But you can put on this Bitcoin miner attached to your nuclear facility and you can send it power. And so since your, your, your Bitcoin mining site can be dialed up and dialed down for kind of how it's dispatched, you've just kind of put like a supercharger on your nuclear plant that you can now actually provide flexibility to the grid because you have the ability to ramp your nuke through the Bitcoin mining. So I wonder, I wonder if they will build out their own facilities or we will see mergers of companies. That, that, will, be, that will be interesting. Okay, yeah. potential flaw in the whole thing because it's brilliant. We have a massive expansion of uh, renewables, a uh, massive expansion of Bitcoin miners connecting to the grid to provide that uh, flexible load balancing. But say the Bitcoin price crashes to a really low price, it gets to the point where some of these miners can't actually profitably mine. Do we then lo lose the load balance? Like, does the Bitcoin price have to stay at a certain price to make this work? Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, it's healthy for these kind of pullbacks to happen. And so like in power generation, again, it's like whenever load drops, right, the, the most uneconomic generator comes offline. And so it's very healthy for us to have these kind of uh, essentially drawdown times where you find out kind of which of the miners are uneconomic and shouldn't be essentially online anymore because they're using a, an inefficient kind of miner. And so think about how... Uh, in the early days, people were mining on their laptop. Yeah. And, you know, essentially nobody can mine on their laptop because it's not profitable. Like it would cost, there's, it's no way. So that's forever gone, right? And so then in uh, 2017, um, you know, some of these miners at the time were making, this S9 miner was making $450 an hour, right? And in 2020, it went all the way down to, you know, 27, 28, right? And so what happened was, um, some of the miners came off the network, which was very healthy, and you mm -hmm. find out kind of which ones are efficient and who's kind of, uh, who is swimming naked, right? And then you find out, you know, then there's this kind of push up that can happen in, in the next push. And so for, you know, even in kind of like, say like the absolute worst case scenario, I'm saying that, um, let's use the far tails, like Bitcoin mining goes to zero, right? I use example about in Ontario is that they would have to export the power out of the grid and pay people to take it. Right, because they just they had to find a home for it, right? And so I remember conversations at the time. They're like, "Why don't we just find like some toasters instead of selling it for zero dollars? You just find toasters that you can just switch onto the toaster and collect zero, as opposed to having to pay somebody to take the power, right?" And so like, so Bitcoin mining in the absolute tail event is really fancy toasters that you can use for managing kind of this dispatching. So on the insurance products, right? So say, even if they're mining Bitcoin at zero, they're still getting paid to take the energy. Because they're, they're providing that flexibility because they can be dispatched <laughs> up and down. <laughs> that is a light bulb moment. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. So and as we get bigger, right? Like, so like in 2017, there was maybe a, a couple of thousand megawatts, right? So two gigawatts. So now we're at 12, right? And so now there's more flexibility. So imagine, you know, kind of four years later and we're at like, making up a number of like 60 gigawatts. And so those things are all providing flexibility. So the more it grows, you know, the more that, you know, this kind of flexibility can be provided in other systems that have this need as they grow more renewables in, into their system. So there's like this careful dance, though, over time of uh, building out the renewable infrastructure, enough ASICs being available to also be built, 
uh, and the network and price will grow with that as well. There's like this dance between it all, but it's it feels like the Bitcoin network will grow with the growth of investment in the renewable infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a little dance that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can think about it as well, Wild. in um, so summer of 2020, um, you could buy uh, one megawatt worth of S9, S9s, which is like 700 miners. You could buy one megawatt for $14,000. Right, and then at the time, is you know, an S nineteen miner was something like uh, you know two million dollars or a million and a half or something. So you think about it, it's just like you know to get your return on capital from that S nineteen miner, which is now three and a half million, right, requires you to get you know between fifty to one hundred dollars back every single hour. But that S nine miner that was considered almost like e waste scrap, right, is that these wind facilities can do a one time payment of like the infrastructure required to have some some miner racks. Right, and have the right type of electrical infrastructure. And so now they can actually buy these old gen miners when there's a downturn and say, we'll take those, right? Because you know, it's not a very big capex. They're toasters. Right? And it's better than me selling to the grid for negative 10. I'll take zero or I'll take uh, 12 or 20, whatever it is, right? And it's, it's obviously much higher than that. But you know, so currently, um, you know, Bitcoin miner is the buyer first resort because it's paying more than the grid, right? But in the future, as more mining gets built out, the network gets a lot bigger, so you get to like you know, 200 gigawatts, you know, mining can act as this buyer of last resort, right? So instead of actually injecting grid, power to the grid at say, you know, negative five, negative 10, you know, here's Bitcoin is saying 20 bucks or 15 bucks. So it's almost like, in this bit of mind trip, it's like it's setting a floor for energy around the world of saying, anybody can put this up and there's always a buyer. Because if you think about it, like, if you put up like a, if somebody puts up a generation uh, resource somewhere, it's got to be grid connected. There's no customer, right? But there's now always a customer. This is what Harry said, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do this occasionally. I sometimes feel like Jeremy has a question. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one concern that's starting to pop up in my mind is on the political front. Um, I could see, is there a potential here where you mentioned two different types of um, there's a lot of terminology flying around here, but mm-hmm. the one where it's like retail driven um, and then they have to uh, cut off their machines that are less profitable. But then you mentioned another one where the grid operator has a direct like- Wholesale. Like a shunt. Right. Yeah. Um, is there a potential here where it seems like that would be the approach that the grid and political parties might want more so than the retail one, so that they can say, oh, no, power, like, we, we need this. We're not going to leave it up to these these banks or whatever who are running the, these mine farms. Is there a potential here where there's a political angle where they'd force, you know, some sort of bill or something like that to um, force people to be retail or to not be retail and to be wholesale? So there's, um, so right now is that there's, there's no power that you know uh, policymakers have over load on kind of like what's just and what's not, and you can't control it, right? And so like uh, the message that I'm you know trying to kind of get out is that like um, you know Brad Jones, the ERCOT CEO, is saying like these can be a great asset for these grids in transition to kind of say that um, so as you add in more renewables into your grid, right, is that you're you're losing control of part of your generation, right? And so like in the grid of the past is like you know loads, you can call them like dumb loads. So they need to be upgraded to smart loads and saying like, 
You're going to lose control of your generation here, so you need to off-balance and, and gain control of load, right? So it's like, and this comes into like the insurance part, right? Because it's like, and the importance of market signals, right? And saying like, as grids go through these transitions, you know, there's more insurance products that are needed to, to, to manage this new problem, right? Because like, there was never this solar ramp problem in, you know, 1995, right? Like that's come up now. And so like the market signal is saying, hey, there's this high valued, you know, insurance product that is open to generation, open to anybody. It's, a, it's an open, transparent market, right? And so the miners say this is like, and it's like, oh man, this is great because like, uh, as a miner, it's like, I talked about like a, a generator says, I'm gonna sell uh, A, energy, or B, uh, you know, insurance, right? I can't do both because I have to turn down to sell the insurance. So these controllable loads uh, have a very, you know, unfair advantage. It's not an A or B, it's gonna say, I'm going to consume energy and simultaneously I'm going to sell you this insurance product because my opportunity cost is near zero because my behavior is not different, right? Like I didn't, I wasn't limited on how much energy I consume, whereas the power generator is limited on this. So my opportunity cost is, is zero, whereas the opportunity cost for a generator is saying, what is, the, what is the value of selling energy versus ancillaries? Which one's to my benefit, right? So the, like a Bitcoin miner has the lowest opportunity cost to beat out all generation which is you know, providing a, a lower cost to, to consumers. So it's really self-serving in the sense that like, um, for a Bitcoin miner is that, I believe as time passes is that, you know, as they're getting bigger and having larger impacts, it's, it's, it's more obvious on where to go, right? Because as a Bitcoin miner, for, you have an objective, objective function. It's I gotta, I gotta minimize my all-in delivered energy costs. And so that's made of my, my cost of energy, my cost of transmission, my cost of distribution. How do I minimize those? And the perfect market is one that says, I can buy low cost energy and I can get paid for providing a high priced insurance product because I'm gonna buy this and simultaneously sell this, which means that my energy price is A minus B, right? And so it's gonna, you know, those market signals are, are, are drawing these miners to say, oh, I, I need, you need help, right? Like, cause I can see the price, right? So I'm gonna move to you because you're giving me the right market signal. And as you get more renewables, you know, that signal is gonna get bigger. And so like, they're gonna naturally drive to these areas because of the markets that are created. Where, where are the holes in this that you see? Where are the risks or the potential flaws in this? Uh, in what way? In, in that, uh, considering Bitcoin miners as part of the network, is, is, I mean, the biggest risk I see is actually regulatory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's people like Elizabeth Warren. That is, a, that is a risk. But is there anything I'm not aware of? It's, it's kind of the awareness of saying that there's there's miners that are within the control of a grid operator and miners outside. And so there's a lot of, and they're both good. I'm not saying that one's, mm. but you know, there's concern that just, you know, having visibility about, you know, this is kind of um, um, uh, voluntary on kind of how they can act behave for some part, right? But just like the value of, you know, being able to provide the service to these, these grid operators to manage these grids. Um, and I'd share with you is that, you know, something I get worried about was that, um, you know, if, if nuclear power was invented today, it'd be the magic pill, right? It'd be like, holy shit, this is it, right? We found this great technology that's base load, can provide this energy, this is amazing. But there's this, you know, perception of nuclear that's tied to kind of, you know, bad events that happen, nuclear bombs, whatever it is, right? But it's really hard to rebrand nuclear, yep. right? And so like, it's my concern and where like, I'm, I'm trying to be like a very, um, present the information uh, to, to folks is that, you know, this is the opportunity to kind of you know brand mining before somebody else brands it for us because okay. you know if, if if somebody else brands it like Elizabeth Warren 
we're in trouble. But if somebody like, like Brad Jones brands it and we all start learning about this and instead of like, um, for the past few years, I've heard a lot of folks say, you know, Bitcoin's good for renewables. And, but the challenge is that they don't really know how to explain it. And so now there seems to be a way to explain it. And then, you know, evidence, right? Like it's saying like, oh yeah, like, you know, during the ERCOT, you know, Winter Storm Uri, they, they turned offline. Oh, in, in, in ERCOT, when there's a plant tripped offline, they provided primary frequency response, which means the heart rate dropped and they automatically dropped in seconds and then recovered after this, you know, heart rate. So like there's now, you know, stories of finding out kind of how it's helpful. And so we just need to kind of be able to, to share that message because you know, if, if Bitcoin mining gets branded poorly, it's going to be a hard, long road to kind of recover from that you know, branding. We're in, we're in my area now, brand and marketing. Mm-hmm. We just think about this, Danny, but like Bitcoin mining is the <laughs> most important tool to combat, combat climate change. The title right there. Get that in the uh, FT, that would be good. You know who we should try to get a conversation with, again, is Catherine Hayhoe. Mm. Get someone like her to understand this. Yeah. Uh, she's a climate scientist. We interviewed her for my other podcast. I used to have this other podcast, Defiance, which we stopped, but we interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago. She's in Lubbock, Texas, um, and uh, we wanted to get her back on the show. And it, her profile's growing. She was on was she on Bill Myers' show? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so her profile's growing. Uh, and to get somebody like her or Michael Mann, somebody, one of the leading speakers on climate change, mm-hmm. to listen to this and understand this, that would be helpful mm-hmm. because that would be a leading voice within that community saying, listen, this is, this is a tool we can use mm-hmm. to actually expand, like following uh, Troy Cross's thesis as well, to expand this, to expand the investment in renewables. How, how much time have you spent looking at Troy's thesis? So Troy and I have, have spoken. Yeah. Okay, great. Few times. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that it's uh yeah, I, I'm supportive of kind of what he's proposing. And it, again, back to like, it's not a, like an or statement. It's kind of saying, let's try a whole bunch of things, right? And we'll see kind of which one takes, And but it's not kind of delimiting. Yeah, I didn't totally buy his thesis when he talked about everybody should mine the percentage of the Bitcoin network they own. I think that's a tough sell. And, but what I did buy is that there are people who want to offset and there are ES, ESG budgets. And whatever anyone thinks, ESG is not going away. Yeah. It's, it, the brand is out there. If you can divert ESG budgets into Bitcoin mining, which mm-hmm. supports and grows the investment in renewables, then that is just a natural win-win. So here's, here's the challenge I have on um, what makes uh, flexible Bitcoin mining under the control of grid operators you know, different normal loads will have like a, they call them RECs obligations, like renewable energy certificates, or, you know, you have to, you know, do something to show that you're coming from all energy, uh, all clean energy or something. Mm. And so like, so here's where I have a, a challenge. I'm, I'm challenged by that is that um, when you flip over to your supporting the grid operator and you're helping with load balancing and providing kind of insurance, you're providing a service, right? So like you're actually, you're consuming, but you're, you're giving, right? Mm-hmm. And so the comparison is a battery. Right. And so battery is on the grid to kind of help to say there's, you know, there's a lot of renewables here. We're going to inject and we're going to you know, put that later on or we'll provide some insurance along the way. But, you know, when you think about a battery, are, are you asking, saying, what are they doing with the energy when the battery puts it back in the grid? Like who's consuming that? Right. And is that is that a good cause? Like is the battery, should we make the battery do something about that? Or um, for every megawatt that the, the battery puts back in the grid, it consumes a, a little more than one megawatt. 
right? So should they buy RECs, right? Should they show that they're buying green energy, right? And the default is like, well, no, they're, you know, they're important, right? This energy transition requires a large amount of batteries and it does, right? But, you know, should they you know, be in the same category as somebody that's just a load only and just taking, right? So like, it's kind of back again in the, uh, um, a Bitcoin mining load that's just consuming and not giving back, not providing flexibility. Okay, there's some type of standard or some type of expectation that need to be supporting it. But another one that's actually providing to the grid and you know, providing this flexibility, well, I think that's different. And I don't know what it is, right? But I just, I, I see it more as, as a battery than just a, a load only that should have the same kind of uh, requirements on kind of green standards, if that makes sense. Okay, that's fair. Okay. Uh, is there anything I've not asked you about that you wish I had that we've not covered yet? It's a lot to take in here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Well, I'm, I'm sure I'll think of them later, but uh, yeah, it's been a lot. Yeah, I mean, look, I never really listen back to my shows just because you know, natural hate my own voice and yeah. think I sound like a moron. I'm, I'm not uh, going to watch this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I think I'm, I'm going to need to listen back to this one. It's a, there's a lot to take in. Um, but you think we've covered it all? I think so. All right. If yeah. people want to follow what you're doing or find out more, where do they get hold of you? And, and do you actually want to hear from anyone? Um, sure. Yeah, I'll try it out. I've, um, so my handle is at Sean Energy, so S-H-A-U-N, uh, Energy. And so Sean with a U uh, on Twitter and my DMs are open and um, I'd love to hear from folks. I'm, I'm getting a lot of DMs about people doing inter, uh, interest in doing academic papers. Uh, it feels like there's a lot of people trying to arm policymakers with good kind of factual uh, information. Um, yeah, so at Sean Energy uh, is across most of my socials. So yeah, we're getting Margot. Do you know Margot Pires? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're getting her uh, funded to do her paper on ERCOT, what's actually happening with the miners, which I think will be a super useful document just to send out any other grid operator to yeah. to realize. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm writing one with Nick right now and talking about flexible Bitcoin mining loads as well. Amazing. When will that be done? Um, we think at the end of the month. Yeah, so coming out soon. Huh. Yeah. I know what Danny's thinking. Uh, okay, this is amazing. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate you coming in yeah. to do this. Uh, a lot to take in. I didn't understand it all. I know I didn't. And thank you for like walking me through it. But yeah, yeah this is great. Good luck with everything you do. And I think, I think we'll probably be doing this again sometime in the future. I'll be back. Thanks for having me. Cheers, bro. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 